Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 89, a conversation with Alicia Renee. Alicia was diagnosed with stage one ovarian cancer in the summer of 2021. And on today's episode, she talks about her diagnosis and what followed. She shares what it was like to find out that she had cancer when she wasn't expecting it. And we talk a lot about this notion and the importance of grieving who you were, what your life was before your cancer diagnosis, before you can start to process and accept and heal after a cancer diagnosis. She speaks about the importance of communication and language, being your own advocate and holding space and boundaries for yourself and with other people. This was a wonderful conversation, and I know that you will learn a lot from it. And with that, it is my honor to welcome Alicia to the Interlude podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Thank you, Alicia, so much for being here and for joining me. Thank you for having me. Let's start by just you introducing yourself, telling the listeners a little bit about who you are, what your story has been so far. I'm a mom. I'm a sister and a great friend. That's what I pride myself on, right? Um, I think I'm funny. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm a healthcare professional. I've worked in healthcare for over 10 years. Um, It's always been a passion of mine. Being, I got, I was an early mom. I got pregnant when I was 19. So I definitely had to, you know, figure things out along the way. Um, so I'm really proud of where I am. August 2021, my life completely changed. And um, hopefully, you know, for the better, um, I definitely have started to um, really prize each day. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened on August 20th? Yeah, so um, actually, it's the beginning of August. I remember July 31st was my grandmother's birthday. She passed away in 2000 from colon cancer. Um, and so we I really used that day to go back and reflect. I went to the beach. I remember that. And then, then I ordered Chinese food because I just was like, hey, boys, I don't feel like cooking. What do you want to eat, you know? And they, of course, they were like, Chinese food. So cool, no problem. I only ordered two egg rolls. So this is kind of gets into how I thought my symptoms were food poisoning because the last thing I ate was two egg rolls. And I just remembered August 1st, that like midnight of, you know, into the 31st, into the 1st of August, I just started to have this really bad pain in my stomach. I was vomiting. I was running back and forth to the bathroom. I mean, and this went on for at least two, three hours. And I was like, oh my God, like I'm never eating egg rolls again. And then after that, I just laid there in the hallway because I was so sick. I couldn't make it back to my room. So I ended up laying on the floor in the hallway. And I ended up laying there for a total of two days. 
my kids walking and stepping over me, not trying to figure out, you know, what's wrong with mommy. And that's like, I think I'm fine. I just think I'm f- have food poisoning. Um, so then later on that night, this is now August the 2nd, um, I say, you know what, call one of you call grandma and one of you call 911. I had ended, I called Kaiser's urgent care to say, hey, these are the symptoms that I'm having. I now I no longer think it's food poisoning. I really think something's wrong. And so they really shared, you know, you know, check if you start to have more pain here on this on your right side, could be your appendix, you know, definitely go to the ER. So as the pain went on, I said, you know what, it's time to go to the emergency room. I don't know what's happening, but I know it's something serious. So I made it to the emergency room, fast forward. Um, I'm in the emergency room. Everyone knows COVID's happening. Everyone knows, um, you know, that I, what I what I encountered and what I expected was totally different. Like I knew hospitals were overwhelmed, but it really didn't hit me until I was in the ambulance and they were literally calling around hospitals in my area trying to find a bed for me. So that was all in itself. I was just like, oh my God. And at that point, um, I really didn't care what hospital they took me to. I just wanted to go to a hospital because I knew they had something that could help with the pain. I ended up going to a doctor's community hospital here in Maryland in Prince George's County. And um, the ER treatment was great. Um, The only thing that looking back that was really saddened me is that one of the ER physicians came in and said, hey, you know, we did the CT. We think that you have a desmoid tumor. So I looked it up on my phone thinking, you know, reading what is a desmoid tumor, you know, I read about it and I was like, huh, no big deal, right? Like, that's nothing. I don't need to really be worried about that. You know, I can recover from that easy. Um, So then it came, we started the weight gain. I was NPO. They knew I had to go to surgery. NPO um, that started in that day, finally was admitted as an inpatient. And then it took about two to three days before I actually had surgery. Um, more so, I believe that it, what has been communicated to me was that it was a delay and um, like really just trying to get me on the uh, on the sheet, on the list for surgery, right? Um, to get me, I forgot what it's actually called, but they couldn't get me in. They couldn't get me in for surgery. So finally, August 6th came um, late at night. I just remember it being late at night. And by this time, my mom was from from who lives in Atlanta and my dad who's in West Virginia, they had made it up by time, you know, just in time for my surgery. So have surgery, the doctor tells me, and at this point I have no idea that he's a GYN oncologist, right? Surgeon, no idea. He just tells me that, hey, we see this thing um, near your ovary. I might have to take it, um, you know. So worst case was I was walking out of there, what? Just one ovary gone, I would still have everything else, you know? Um, So then um, that happened. And then apparently um, before I even could have surgery, I required a blood transfusion. Then I later found out I needed one during surgery and then after surgery. And that's, you know, that is very common. I mean, when there's all this stuff happening in the body, especially major surgery, there is bleeding and there is blood loss. So we see that, you know, a fair amount. Okay. After the surgery, uh, but I spent three days in the ICU. So the surgery, I really had a lot of complications after the surgery. Again, not knowing that I had a total hysterectomy. So after all that. Can I ask, who was your emergency, not emergency, but who was your primary contact? You You were unconscious. Who did the doctors after the surgery go out and talk to? And did they tell them that information? Yes, I believe um, the emergency contact was my mother. um, But 
though I think those three days um, of me um, being because I was heavy heavily medicated because um, the pain was really I mean it was I it was I, it's indescribable it was just really bad it was really bad pain but I, I'm not sure if it was my sister I know they were trying to talk to me but I mean I. I don't remember a lot of the conversations. I mean, I've even disclosed stuff to people that I wouldn't have disclosed stuff to because I was so heavily medicated. People were calling and checking on me from work. And I later found out that I shared information that I would have never shared, you know, but mm-hmm. I was heavily medicated. A couple of days later after me, you know, being transferred to a regular floor from ICU, the surgeon came in and he's, you know, really broke it down and explained everything. It's like, hey, you had a total hysterectomy. So my eyes were like, what? And um, explained that he took my appendix as well. Um, that he wasn't sure what he saw. So he took everything. That was the best. That's what he thought was the best thing to do. And that's what he did. Um, And that he had sent off my, um, sent everything off to pathology at John Hopkins and was waiting for those results to come back. So in the meantime, it was just, you know, you know, really focus on taking care of yourself. I had two open wounds at the time. Um, I don't really know how the details of it, but I know the part, the bottom part of my incision for the hysterectomy was left open. And then I had a area on my side that was left open, I think for like a tube or something, not hundred percent sure about all of that. I just know I had a wound back and I had two wounds and I was just, I was grossed out by it because, oh my God, you had to be clean. And I had, I just, I had never experienced that before. I just did, it was like a unknown of, you know, what's supposed to happen. And I, again, I worked in healthcare. I knew that there was a wound nurse. I knew a nurse did the cleaning, but I never personally experienced it. So I just really didn't know what I know now, you know? Were you prepared for the possibility that all of this would happen during surgery? You know, did they tell you, okay, we're going to try to, you know, save everything, but we may have to take everything. And so that's the part that I feel I want to say no, but I also feel like, you know, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt that yes, they did have that conversation with me. I just don't remember. I do remember being in um, right before um, being wheeled into the operating room. I had the anesthesiologist come in and introduce herself to me. And then it was another guy that came and introduced himself to me. And I just remember begging them, like, please don't let anything happen to me, you know, and please tell the doctor because I've had two C-sections, like, like, please tell the doctor, just give me um, dissolvable stitches, right? I, like, I didn't know. <laughs> I just know I did. I witnessed my sister when she had her C-section have staples removed. And I said, I never, ever wanted to have to go through that. So I just was like, just please tell them. They, you know, they said, we'll, we'll, we'll tell them your request, right? So those are the only things I remember before surgery. I don't remember anything else before surgery. I think, you know, I will say that this happens a lot. There's so much information being given to you, right? There's all this planning, people coming in and talking to you. And we find that a lot that there's this disconnect about what we think patients hear and and what they process. Um, And again, because there's just so much happening and it really speaks to the point of either having that conversation multiple times, having your advocate with you. Mm -hmm. And the challenging part is during COVID, a lot of hospitals aren't allowing you to have someone with them. Um, And that causes a lot of issues because you don't have your, you don't have someone there who can hear everything if you're not maybe hearing it at the moment. Right. And so that was the part of it is that once I found out that I had a total hysterectomy, I definitely was sad. Like I was sad. 
Um, I guess that thinking about it now, I mean, it's only been almost six months now since everything. And so I'm still healing, but it just, I definitely like felt like, I don't, I want to say I didn't feel like I was a woman anymore, but I just felt like, you know, Hey, like I'm still young enough to have kids. And, you know, I thought, you know, at the back of my mind that maybe I would have, you know, have the opportunity to have another child, but if I still wanted it to be my choice. And so I understand that it was the best thing for me. I just feel like I didn't have a choice. Like I didn't have a choice in saying, yes, this is what I want to happen to me, you know? So I just feel like that was taken from me. It just has been really difficult to now, like I'm in, I'm 36 now and going through menopause. Right. And so that part has been really hard for me. But, you know, being high, I used, I used to always be the person that's always cold, you know? And so to now always be hot and not know how to deal with that. And um, to have people say to me, um, well, you don't have to have a period anymore. You know, it's just to me that it's, it's insensitive um, because you had trouble with your periods or something that you didn't want. Doesn't mean that I didn't like mine or that I didn't want mine, you know? Well, I've never I, think, had- I think there's also a big part of what you just mentioned that it's that that you didn't have that decision, right? You didn't make the decision on your own. And not only did you not make the decision in a matter of days, it was done and kind of, you know, that ability to make that choice was taken away from you. And, um, and no matter, even if you know, was the best thing for your health and no matter if nothing else could have been done, you are still allowed and need to grieve that loss. Yeah. You know, and I think people sometimes try to minimize it because they want to seem positive and but no, you have that, you should grieve because that, that's a part of you that's not here anymore. Right. And yeah. And then hearing people say like, I'm a coffee girl. Okay. Like I can go through, I have, I bought an espresso for myself a couple of years ago. And so that, I think that speaks to the degree of how much I love coffee. Right. So I have all type of flavors for Christmas. I have the gingerbread flavor coffee. It's a good flavor. Flavor. Yes. Good flavor, yes. You know? <laughs> and so people are saying to me like, oh, you why have to cut coffee from your diet. And it's like, again, now something else, a part of me that has to get, you know, quote unquote, taken away from me because this happened to my body, you know? Um, and so, I mean, I'm still drinking my coffee, but I just feel like I'll, I might have to, instead of having it every day out of the week, then maybe I'll just do two days, you know? Mm-hmm. So I've been trying to do those type of negotiations with myself. Um, so what so yeah. happened? Um, so kind of, you, you had the surgery. Yeah. Walk me through, did you go home? Like, where were you when you found out about the pathology? What happened after that? Oh, yes. Okay, so... Um, I was admitted inpatient August 6th, discharged August the 20th of 2021. And then I remember I had a follow-up appointment with um, my primary care physician. And then I had another appointment, I think the two days later with um, the surgeon that did my surgery because he was outside of my network. And so I met with him and then, you know, he, you know, he told me, uh, he just came out and said, you know, you had ovarian cancer. Um, and I, I just, I don't know what my reaction was. I mean, I know I didn't say anything. I know. I just, I just remember looking at him. I think a part of me, um, was like trying to prepare myself, like if they said that, but I never really thought like he was going to tell me ovarian cancer. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I, I just, 
I just stood there and I just remember, um, cause again, I, I had been in the hospital so long. I had to have a walker. Um, I had to go to physical therapy and then I had a wound nurse come in. Um, but so I had my walker and I remember thinking like I have to get in the car with my mom. And I know the first thing she's going to ask me is, you know, what did the doctor say? And I, I know I took a minute to myself to try to like prepare myself. Like, how was I going to tell my mom? Cause I don't want to see her, you know, cry and you know what I mean? And I know, it's emotional and I don't want her to think that she couldn't cry either because she said like, I'm her daughter. I expect her to have some type of emotion about it. Um, so, you know, I really got myself together and eventually I, I told her, I didn't come out as directly and tell her, um, you know, I just said, he, you know, he did refer me to, uh, to see a, get a second opinion, to see a medical oncologist. And then I, you know, eventually I told her um, what they said. We, I remember we went to get some food, like my favorite place to get some soul food. Cause she's just like, yeah, I'm like, I deserve it today, mom. Like I, like I deserve it. I'm eating my macaroni and cheese and my sweet potatoes. Like I deserve it. And so we did that. And then we went to my grandparents' house and then I shared the news with them. We're really a tight knit family. Um, and I'm really personal about stuff that happens. Like I'll share any, like certain stuff with this doesn't matter to me, but stuff about my health, like, you know, no one, you know, I don't just don't share that information. Um, so I realized then though, I was like, I kind of have to nail right? I need to let people know what's happening with me. And so I told my mom, uh, my mom, my grandparents, and then my sister came over, <laughs> right? Because once everyone finds out we're at our grand, someone says my grandparents, like everyone just starts to come over and then we just start, they turn into this family occasion, right? Um, and so we ended up ordering more food for my sister. And then I, you know, I took her outside and I told her, and um, I can't even remember if I actually told her the type of cancer. I just, I feel like I did. But the other day when I was talking to her, she said, um, what, it was ovarian cancer? I didn't know that. And I'm just thinking like, no, I told you, like, I think that was another part too that I really wanted to talk about and like share with people is that when I came home, my sister, my friends, my mom, like everyone thought I was being mean to them because I wasn't talking or I wasn't responding to their text messages. And I tried to tell them like, this happened to me. Like, I know that if you, it happened to you too, but not the way it happened to me. Right. And I like, I need space. I need boundaries. I'm trying to process what happened to me. I had to process not seeing my children for three weeks I had never I've never gone more than two or three days without seeing my kids so to go three almost three weeks without seeing them and not having them come up and having to record video messages you know to keep them going you know it was a lot it was a lot for my kids and it was a lot for me and then coming home and seeing my house being totally transformed into something I have never seen before I'm like my kids know how I am <laughs> and it was stuff everywhere and I just was like I I just I like I, I, I could I didn't have the energy to deal with the mess you know I didn't have the energy to say you know you're supposed to take out the trash you know you're supposed to do like I didn't have that energy I didn't really share to my with my kids until weeks later you know what had happened um so they just knew I had to have surgery you know what I mean I, they didn't really understand how serious the surgery was and really what this meant for their mom so eventually I you know I did have that conversation with them I did tell them but I really started with my oldest first he um he was 16 at the time he's now 17 so I really have been keeping him in the loop just because I want him to know if anything ever happens to me like this is what you're supposed to do 
don't let anybody ever come to our house and redecorate. <laughs> I don't care. Even if it is your grandmother, like don't allow them to do that. Right. Um, and jokingly, but I mean, I know my mom, it, it was what she needed to do to calm herself, you know? Um, so yeah, but like, she really went extreme. Like she bought me a whole new, um, bedroom set. She redid my bathroom. She <laughs> removed all my makeup and, uh, perfume bottles and like put it in the, the way she wanted. I was just like, mom, like, I don't you know. Some people this. clean, right. When they're stressed or scared, yeah. they organize and they clean. So that's what mom was doing. So kind of as you're recovering from the surgery, you know, you saw the surgery, you're meeting with the medical oncologist. What was the treatment after? Did you need chemotherapy? No. And so that was the great news. Um, the one that um, I saw the surgeon, you know, he did refer me to see, uh, get a second opinion because um, he said he didn't think that I needed chemo. He does think that, you know, my prognosis was good. And, um, but he did want me to get a second opinion. I did get connected with, uh, I think he's a really great meta, um, um, oncologist. Um, he really, we spent, I think about 30, 45 minutes, like going through what, what they saw, the type of cancer it was, and it was stage 1A, um, which means it was just um, conf confined to one ovary. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's really important because I think this can be dismissive from people to, when you tell them that you have stage one cancer compared to stage, in stage three or stage four. It's like, oh, it's not a big deal. It wasn't stage three or stage four, but no, it is, right? I might not be going through all the things that someone with stage three or stage four is going through, but you know, it still happened to my body, right? Um, and I don't want to compare us at all because I, you know, I just think all cancer period is devastating, you know? It's important that we exactly what you said, you know, the words that we use matter and getting away from, well, you had the good cancer. No, there's no such thing. Right. You know, there's all cancer is bad. I mean, they're within it. Yes. You have milder forms maybe where you don't need treatment, but, or don't need chemotherapy, but you had major surgery. You right. had a hysterectomy, your ovaries removed, your body's completely different. You're in menopause and those, none of those things are mild. Right. Right. And I think that was part of getting that awareness to my friends mm -hmm. and families. Like I, I really focused on getting back to myself, you know, being independent, not asking anybody for anything. Um, cause that's just who I am. And it, it was really much how, what I saw my mom do. She, you know, she had, I remember I was in high school, she had brain surgery, you know, and she still, you know, she, she didn't really tell us all the deep things that she was going through, but I saw her get through it. So I knew I could get through it. I just didn't know, like I understood her better after going through this surgery and about all the things that she had to sacrifice and the things that like not being able to see your kids, like, she, you know, she couldn't really see us. And when we did go up there to see her, it wasn't, it wasn't like the interaction that you're used to. So, I mean, it was definitely eye-opening to go through this, um, but I still wouldn't wish it on anybody, you know, I, I, and even my worst enemy, I would never want anybody to go through that and even to hear those words, right? Um, because I think over the years by hearing cancer, you've, you become, um, you get automatically think like it means that your life is about to end, you know? Um, and so of course I had those think feelings. And I mean, I feel like I, I I'm, it's on my mind constantly, like, is it going to come back? Um, and so right now my treatment is every two to three months, I have a pelvic exam and I have uh, a CA-125 order and an inhibitor A and B. So like, I just went for a CT and then now on my left side, they saw a sac which they think is perioperative fluid. 
I, you know, I'm just going to have to keep going back to get that, um, you know, looked at and hopefully it doesn't grow. Um, and apparently if it does grow, I might have to have surgery again, you know, and that's something I don't want. I, I never want to have to have surgery again, but you know, it just is what it is. Um, and I just, um, want to just continue to, to do my follow-up care and, you know, make sure I'm changing my diet and working out, you know, doing a lot more exercise than I've done before. And those are the things that's, you know, changing about myself because I am a foodie. Like I go out to eat all the time. I like to try new restaurants. I live in Maryland. So I'm on the border of like, I'm close to Baltimore. I'm close to DC. I'm close to Virginia. There's so many restaurants and things to do around town and all of them just about include eating. (laughs) So it just, I, I, you know, I worry about, well, what does this mean now? Does this mean I know I can't eat like, you know, I can't eat these things anymore. Does this mean that I can't go these places anymore? It's just a lot of things about myself now that I'm like questioning, like, what does this mean about the quality of my life going forward? And then I know I've, you know, I've read about the five-year reoccurrence that like, if you can go five years and, you know, you're quote unquote cancer-free or uh, the likelihood of it reoccurring is reduced, I guess. I'm not a hundred percent sure. So if you can educate me on that, please. (laughs) Yeah. Five years, um, you know, cancer, I mean, any cancer can kind of come back at any time. The stage ones have a much lower risk of recurrence. That's why you don't need chemotherapy for certain stage one cancers, not for all. Um, but yes, we kind of say that if at least an ovarian cancer, and it differs based on cancer and cancer subtype, but if you can make it to five years that your risk, you kind of hit that milestone, your risk of recurrence is going to drop off dramatically after that point, uh, which is which is fantastic. But it, it is, it can be hard to live through that time worrying and thinking about, you know, recurrence. And, and part of it is, I think, learning to know your new body again, as you're saying, right. And knowing what is normal for your new body and what needs to be worked up. And I think there's a lot of unknowns that come with that, especially when a lot of people feel like maybe their body betrayed them in a way that this happened. Um, And really like, you know, chemo or not, radiation or not, surgery or not. I mean, I think it's kind of reconciling this who you were before a cancer diagnosis and who you are going to be after a cancer diagnosis. And that can be hard. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Um, And just because I think it's even harder for me because uh, I work in healthcare, you know, and um, my background is quality and patient safety. So I've always done plenty of chart reviews. I've always worked with physicians and nurses to improve communication, advocate for patients. And I mean, and that spent a lot of time advocating for patients, even though I'm not clinical, I'm saying, Hey, you know, why don't you try saying this? If you're trying to get, you know, a patient to go to the bathroom, instead of saying, don't get up because you're a high fall risk, let's try um, ma'am, I, I really care about your safety or, you know, I really would like to be able to help you. I don't, you know what I mean? So it was just really working with nurses and doctors to figure out different ways on how we can communicate better with our patients and advocate for their patients. And I've served on patient advocacy boards, you know what I mean? So in committees, so it just, for me to not, I've kind of, I had blamed myself um, because I feel like I didn't advocate hard enough for myself because prior to this diagnosis for two years, two years, I had suffered from abnormal bleeding. And when I mean abnormal bleeding, I mean, I was bleeding for 30 days or more. And it was every single day. 
I was bleeding. And I mean, I would, I was going to the doctors two or three times in the same month because the bleeding was, I was thinking I was going to die because I was bleeding so much. Um, and so I was diagnosed with endomyosis. Yes. I was diagnosed with that and poly, poly ovarian. Yes. Syndrome. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Those two. Um, and so it was kind of written off, um, as those were the issues causing my abnormal bleeding, even though in my heart, I'm like, no, this isn't it. Something is really wrong. Um, and so we, there was talk about hysterectomy with my gynecologist, but you know, I'm just like, no, why would I want to do that? You know, um, especially because, you know, I'm not married yet. Even though I have my two kids, like I might have another husband that wants a baby and I'm not, you know, completely yeah. out of out of the options of, you know, having a baby. So I still wanted to weigh my options, but I really wanted us to get to the root of what was causing the abnormal bleeding. And so she did order a um, scan of my um, pituitary gland um, and did some additional hormone testing. And so for me, my red flag was my FHA. It was so low. It's a follicle stimulating hormone. Okay. Yes. So we did that and it was just really low. And so I was concerned, but of course, you know, your body is your body. Um, my pituitary my gland was fine, but they found additional fluid on my brain that was maybe um, doing something to my optic nerve. Uh, it's called the uh, hypertensive cranial something. So I ended up having to get a lumbar puncture. So after, because of that scan, it really kind of stopped the focus on what was happening with the abnormal bleeding. And this was all in 2020. And then I had to spend 2021 doing the lumbar puncture and trying to figure out and seeing a neurologist trying to figure and the eye doctors trying to figure out what was going on with that. <laughs> so while all of that is happening, August comes and now I'm in the hospital for this hysterectomy. So um, I, I'm not, I can't predict the future or say if we would have, you know, what would have been if, you know, I didn't, they didn't find the additional fluid. If we would have been able to, um, you know, say, Hey, this is, you know, we might think this is cancer, but I do remember asking for a CA-125 test. I remember asking, Hey, could this be uterine cancer? Um, and then, you know, I was told, no, you're too young, right? You're too young for that. You don't need to worry about that. Kind of written off, like, you know, you, you, you couldn't have cancer because you have these two things going on with you. Right. Um, and so that I think is what has angered me the most is that, hey, you know, I, I, I asked for these testing, these tests, and it was like, you don't need them. Don't worry. So, what, so advice, I, what advice would you give to someone who's hearing this? Because I know you've been very, you know, a strong advocate and that's kind of your focus right now. What advice would you give to someone who's, who says, look, I really, I'm not comfortable with the diagnosis or I think something else is going on and I'd like this test and they are being told no. Um, and sometimes they're being told no, I think because it's maybe not the appropriate test, but, or, or, or maybe not, right? So how, how does someone advocate for themselves? My first thing is to say, ask the doctor, say, humor me, give me the test. Hey, I pay the, like, I'm paying for it. So humor me to get the test. Like, costs you nothing to order the test even if you think it's wrong and like if it if you think i'm wrong give me the test to help me be be confident that what you're telling me is correct you know that it, and i have nothing to worry about and then i think that will relieve the stress of thinking that you have these things because now you have a test that may you know i know the ca125 isn't a great marker for yeah. ovarian cancer so i do know that but still humor me right give me the test and then if it was depending on what it was, then you can kind of go from there. Um, but like I said, you just don't know, um, especially with ovarian cancer and that CA125, um, what direction. But I definitely say, 
ask the doctor to humor you, like just give me the test, you know, keep pushing for it. Another thing I would do and that I feel like I should have done that I didn't do was ask her to put refuse to treat. You refuse to treat me for what I'm asking, right? To be treated for, right? Period. And Or I can just go find me another gynecologist that's willing to give me the test that I'm asking for. Um, I think also if I had, maybe if I had more facts about the specific dates, even though I was going there for two years, I think if I, maybe if I had a, um, provided more of my symptoms, you know, throughout a course of a week or two weeks, that maybe that would have helped um, her feel like that was the right way to go. Um, so I just, uh, my biggest thing is to just keep speaking up and to just keep asking for the test and just like, I, I, for me going forward, I, if I ask for something and they'd say a doctor tells me no, I'm just going to ask either refuse a treat or I'm just going to have to find a new a new provider and like have that conversation though with the providers like I feel like you're not hearing me I feel that you know I might need to look for a new provider that's willing to you know meet me where I am and understand my concerns because right now I don't feel like you are taking my concerns as serious as I am. I think that's a really important perspective and I think kind of coming from a provider's perspective, right? You have to somehow meet in the middle um, and figure, I think what a lot of it is lacking is someone says, okay, I want this test done. And it's like, yes or no, without having a conversation of, well, why do you want the test done? Right? What are we not talking about? What do you, and I think a lot of it is when we do tests, there has to be a conversation about why we want a particular test what we're worried about, what we think the test is going to show and what we're going to do with the results. And I I think that it has to be a two-way conversation because there's so often it's like yes or no, and you're not really getting into the reason for why the test is. Right. Right. And this is what um, I I shared um, with um, the oncologist. I shared the exact same thing. You know, hey, I asked for this test. And then he said, you know, with your background and where I work um, and where I have worked, you know, it was enough to, for him to say, he, he's like, yeah, you know, I would have believed you. You know, I would have, I would have, I would have let, went ahead and ordered the test. And so to hear that validation from him, um, you know, it made, it did make me feel good. Like, okay, so there, you know, there was, there is people that are providers that are willing to listen to you and to, you know, go in the direction that you think is the best direction. You know, I just think that it, there was, there is more opportunity to um, really get away from that thought process that you have to be a certain age in order for cancer to um, affect you. I mean, we see that a lot, right? Because there is this conception that you have to be of a certain age to get cancer. And, th- and that that's number one old data. We are seeing younger and younger cancer, especially in breast cancer, people are getting cancer at a very young age. Um, and we don't know exactly why that is, but it's there. Right. And so I think you do have to be aware of it. You know, it's interesting for me, right? Cause I only am an oncologist. I only see cancer. I never see anything benign. So to me, it happens at every age, but I realize that when you're seeing, you know, at the same time, people don't, it's hard because they don't want to jump to cancer all the time and do it's, it's a fine line. It's, and that's right. where the conversation is really important and spending some time to figure out, okay, what symptoms are you having? Why are you as the patient concerned that this is more than something else? And then another thing that they did that 
looking back is so disappointing is because before I, my the GYN that I had before my current one, the one that diagnosed me with the um, PCOS, she, um, I saw a guy. And so his response of my abnormal bleeding was to treat me with birth control. And then when I trans uh, cancel him and go to a new provider, her same approach is to treat me with birth control, right? So, I mean, and I even so I just pulled it out my drawer. I still have like four or five packs of, um, or more of birth control packs because they ordered me a 12 year supply of birth control to help with my abnormal bleeding. And so to me, it was like, oh, it's just a band aid, right? If you take these pills, this will stop the discomfort or <laughs> the inconvenience of, you know, your abnormal bleeding. And to me, I was like, is that really the best way to treat this? I was really concerned, but I guess not that concerned where I felt like I needed to change gynecologists. And this is where I feel like I'm blaming myself because I know better. I should have changed providers. Yeah, I think you can blame yourself, right? I mean, you, you just can't. You were doing the best that you could with the information that you had. And you do have people that are telling you, no, everything is okay. And I think it can be really hard when you want things to be okay. And right. you have people telling you that it's okay. It's, it's easy to yeah. say, yes, I'm, I've been told that I'm fine. So I, you can't, you know, in hindsight, there's always, you know, hindsight's always 2020, but I think you can't blame yourself, but you can, I think I love what you're doing now, which is taking what you've learned and really using it to advocate for yourself and for others. So what are you doing now? I know you have the Instagram account, the Teal Pro My Teal Project, right? Yes, yes, my Teal Project. Um, but the Instagram account is at my is at Promises of Hope. Um, just how it sounds, Promises of Hope. Um, because actually a couple years ago, about eight years ago, I had started this nonprofit. I mean, got incorporated and in everything. The only thing I didn't do was file the um, IRS paperwork for the 503. Um, because oh my God, that's a lot of work. <laughs> but <laughs> and then trying to hide, find a lawyer and all that, you know, it's difficult. But I started this um, pro um, Promises of Hope organization to bring awareness to gynecologic cancers because I had witnessed my son's grandmother. She had ovarian cancer stage three and I witnessed how fast it deteriorated her body, how quickly her, you know, her hair went out and the same thing with her. She had symptoms. They told her it was her gallbladder, had her gallbladder removed. And once they removed the gallbladder, that's where they found the cancer. Right. Um, and so I was like, I have to do something because, um, you know, my, 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 my grandmother, my aunt, my uncle, they've all have a history of cancer. Mm -hmm. you know, my great grandmother, I mean, rare cancer, like bowel duct cancer. My great grandmother had, um, um, esophagus cancer, my uncle had. And so it's like, I had this his family history of all these different types of cancer that I just wanted to bring awareness to it. Right. But the ovarian cancer, that one scared, I don't want to cuss, but that scared the shit out of me. Like to see her in She's like she didn't have any energy like it just really scared me and so I really wanted to act and so um I kind of put that off to the side because I had my youngest son and then I started went back to school for um, my master's in health administration so I was pretty busy focusing on trying to be a better version of me um and then this happened and I'm just like you see Alicia like you really have to continue with this awareness because there's someone right now having similar symptoms or symptoms that you don't that you didn't have but they're not sure what to do and they if by just seeing this one post or seeing my symptoms or seeing my story or having someone else share that story that maybe that'll get them 
um, you know, to the hospital or to a doctor that can get them diagnosed early, right? Or to get something looked out, you know? Um, so I really wanna um, use my page, my platform, my story to share um, and bring awareness to this cancer and to women's health overall. I feel like we kind of get the back burner of everything, right? Um, and then even the conversation about menopause, like my mom was like really trying to give me this rundown of menopause while once, you know, maybe the last week I was in um, the hospitals, like, you know, you're going to start feeling this way, you know, watch for your mood, you know, things to look for. But no one told me how hot I was going to be. Like, no one told me how hot I was going to be. And so um, it's like, we really need to have those conversations. And then another thing too, I feel like um, and I've been learning, joining different uh, Facebook groups and uh, reaching out to ovarian cancer associations to kind of get involved in their support groups because, um, you know, I wanted to be able to talk with people that have gone through what I've gone through. Um, but what I have seen is that there aren't a lot of people in those groups that look like me, right? Um, that in not just my race, you know, it's, they're not my, in my age group, you know, a lot of the women are older, um, and have grandkids, you know, and so, um, it's a little difficult to kind of, um, relate to, you know, their things because they, you know, they've already, um, you know, seen that, you know, raised their children and I'm still raising my children. And, you know, so it's like tips on, you know, how do you communicate these things with, with, or share with your children? Like, how did that work when you have young children? And so it's still a whole lot of questions that I have about sharing information with my family and friends and, you know, just talking to someone that understands where you are and um, getting their advice or support about how to move forward, you know, is really different than trying to talk to someone that hasn't been through what you're going through. The advocacy groups and the support groups have to have have to be diverse in different ways, age, race, what people are going through in life, education, you know, all of those things so that there's someone for everyone to say, hey, you went through this, you know, and you were raising kids and I'm now in early menopause with young kids and, you know, I don't know what to do, right? I think right. as much as we want to relate to everyone, we are going to relate to people who are kind of in the same path in our life a little bit better in the moment. Um, and I, I think it is really important for also because of all the advocacy work that you're doing for people to say, yes, you're bloating, your abnormal bleeding in your 30s is not normal. Right, right. Yeah. And I think to having and um, not just to have like uh, any bias about having someone with my same race or same age is just um, I think when you're having when you're talking to someone that's on the that's going through the same thing that you're going through, you kind of feel like you build like this sisterhood or this um, this trust. Right. And so it's hard to trust someone that doesn't look like you or doesn't isn't experiencing what you're experiencing because it's not trust are they going to share the information it's trust that you know can I share this with them and they understand where I'm coming from and not think that I'm being negative not think that you know I'm a doubter or that I don't have faith you know what I mean and so that has really come up in some of these groups that I'm in is that like if you say like you're having a bad day that people are saying like be positive and it's like I can still be positive and have a bad day or be sad that this happened to me I'm not saying that I don't have faith I'm not saying that I'm not positive I'm just at this moment in time right now, this is how I feel. And I'm sharing that, right? And I just need some encouragement. And I think um, I really would like to change that. I really would like to change how people respond to people that are going through tough times that 
just because I'm sharing this tough time with you doesn't mean that I don't believe. It just means that I need someone to hear me, right? I just need you to hear me. And I think that it's really hard for people not to then jump in with a comment like, oh, but you're going to be fine, right? Because they don't, we don't talk a lot about what you should say instead, right? Instead of saying everything's going to be fine, it's simple to say, I hear you. I'm sorry that you're going through a hard time. Everyone wants to help and fix. And so I think when we start talking about the language of cancer, we have to also talk about the more we educate others on what to say and what not to say, I think the better the experience can be for for others. Yeah, definitely agree with that. And I also think too that um, family and friends, um, I think they think they're helping and sometimes they're just not helping. It's just like, you're not giving me a chance to breathe and like process this um, and to be by myself. And because like my, I remember my sister, she's like, you're being mean to me. And my mother had came and it's like, stop being mean to your sister. I'm like, I'm being mean to her and I'm the one with stitches in me. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm the one that's trying, it has to, you know, I was 35 using a walker to go to the bathroom because I wasn't stable enough to walk on my own. And so it was just like, I'm being mean to her. It's like, I'm trying to figure out how I went from being this independent person to now like relying on my mom to wash me up, you know? Um, and she's, my mom literally had to wash me up. We had to get a shower chair. Like I really could not do anything. I was bed bound for enough that like, I really needed to do some physical therapy to kind of get my stamina back up and um, be confident in my gait. I mean, it was, it was a lot that I went through. Um, and I'm, and I'm, I'm aware that people go through way worse. Right. Um, but I just, how do you, so then what advice or how would you say to talk to your family members? I think differently than friends, right. You know, do you say, I mean, I don't know. I always tell people like to be honest with your family members about what you're going through and maybe why you're either pulling back or, or sharing more, whatever it is that you're the way you're reacting to be honest about it. But is that, would you say that's good advice or would you have something different to say? Okay, I'm gonna give you this example, right? My mom, while I was here, she had texted my aunt, my aunt who is, she's in her 70s and doesn't really know how to work her phone. And we have a family group chat. But her and my mom were talking back and forth and my mom shared my diagnosis with her. And so my aunt, trying to reply back to my mom, replies back to the group chat. And so now everyone in my family knows my diagnosis and, and then automatically everyone just starts saying they're praying for them. They're so sorry. They didn't know. And I felt so violated. Like I was pissed with my mother. I was pissed with my aunt. Um, and I was not pissed that like, how could you do this to me? It's like, I know my aunt is old. I know she don't know how to work her phone, but at the same time, I was just like, this is why mom, you should not be talking about my diagnosis to other people without my permission. I did not tell you that you could do that. And so it, it did take a, a, about a week for me to like, like let it go. Um, but I share that story to say that even family think they're doing the right thing. They wanted to pray. Um, and it's just like, mom, you guys can pray without knowing my diagnosis, right? <laughs> so it, it was that type of dialogue that I really had to have with them. And then I, I replied to the group and I told them, you know, this is, you know, I, I didn't care for them to know before I told my kids, like you guys know before my kids and that's a problem for me. My thing is with family is allow the person 
to be honest, but in their timing and, you know, don't share without their permission, right? Ask the question. So, hey, is it okay if I share this with your grandmother? Mm-hmm. Is it okay if I share this with your aunt? Um, you know, and just have that conversation. And if they, if that person tells you no, you have to respect that. Because otherwise, going forward in your treatment, that means I really can't trust you. So I definitely have had that. Me and my mom are really close. So we can talk, like we can have these conversations. And I know that can be difficult for some people, but me, even my kids, my, they're 17 and 10. Like we had those conversations. Like if I say something you don't like, or I do something you don't like, I need you to tell me. Cause that's the only way I can fix it is if I know that you didn't like it. So we're really open about that. Um, but yeah, I really do hope that friends and well, especially family are, you know, really asking and talking to uh, their loved one about sharing personal PHI. <laughs> and I think also about, you know, saying, whatever you need, right? Whether you want to talk, whether oh, yeah. you don't want to talk, whether you want to yell or laugh or cry or to have that conversation about what you as the person going through it needs at that moment. Because some people don't want to talk about it as their way of coping and other people, that's kind of the only thing that they want to do. After I was able to put myself in my mom's shoes, I was able to kind of like not be so mad at her. Um, and, um, understand that she really had my best interest at heart, but we definitely had to have that tough conversation about, you know, the back and forth about like, I don't like when you do this and, and really understanding. And so eventually she had opened up and she shared, like, um, when the doctor told her that it might be cancer and, you know, she told me, you know, she went outside and she just cried. She's like, I just balled up and cried. And, um, then my dad, she, you know, shared what my, my dad's reaction to it was. And so, as she started to open up about how she was feeling, it also helped me to understand, you know, that, yeah, it happened to me, but it did happen to her too. Um, and it definitely, I think, definitely made our relationship stronger, right? Because in that moment, through during that time, I knew without a doubt, like, if I didn't have anybody else in this world, that lady was going to make sure and always was going to make sure that I'm okay. And so I'm so grateful for her, you know? I appreciate you being honest. Um, And I I think that there's so many nuances to a relationship, especially one during treatment and during a cancer diagnosis that it's it's important to talk about it. Before we wrap up, Alicia, is there anything that you didn't talk about or anything that you want to bring up? What I really wanted to um, talk about and what I'm really hoping for, and hopefully, you know, the people that are listening um, or people in the healthcare field, you know, feel just as strong and we can get something going. And even if it's not, I'm involved, just if you can do it, you know, in your healthcare center, it's just to really have more transparency, you know, reach out for consults. Um, if you're a gynecologist or a primary care physician and you're not sure about something, hey, reach out to an oncologist and say, you know, I had this patient, she's been having these symptoms. What do you think? Can I, you know, should I schedule her for a consult? It's like, it costs, well, I know this costs, but I mean, quote unquote, yeah. it costs nothing to do. You know what I mean? Um, and so I feel like we should have more of that. I feel like um, this awareness about the CA-125 testing, uh, I think, yeah, we know. I think there's some people out here that know that CA-125 is can be used for um, detecting cancer. But I think definitely more conversation about what, you know, what it really can detect and um, how sensitive it is with uh, detecting ovarian cancer. And then, like I said, we talked on this earlier, just really getting away from the you're too young. You're too young to have cancer. 
I think those are all really, really excellent points. And it's all about communication and working together and talking to each other. Yeah. Right. Other doctors talking to each other, patients, anyone, right? Like anyone who engages in the healthcare setting at all. And I mean, you know, this with what you do and, and your work in communication, where can listeners connect with you if they want to talk to you, see all the advocacy work you're doing? Um, they can follow me on Instagram at promises of hope. Wonderful. Thank you so much for this. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I, my heart is so full. I'm thankful that I had this platform to share and you really helped um, echo my, like my feelings and help me get bringing this awareness to people that I you know may not have ever been able to reach. So I'm just so grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this conversation. It is an important one as all of them are, but I think this one really touches on a lot of the emotions that people feel and experience and go through, you know, when they're diagnosed with cancer, there is so much that happens in that moment. For the most part, no one thinks that they're going to be diagnosed with cancer. And so this overwhelming amount of feelings and emotions that runs through people during that time is hard, is challenging. And I think Alicia really does such a great job of getting that across. And I hope that as you listen to it, you you were able to get that and were able to really understand what people are facing. Her discussion or the discussion around advocacy and listening to yourself and really advocating and pushing for what you need, I think can't be stated enough. You can find Alicia on Instagram at Promises of Hope. And as always, you can find me at Dr. Toplinski on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. If you enjoyed this episode or any others of the podcast, I would be honored if you could take a moment to leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify now, uh, as that is the best way to help me grow the show and to be able to bring it to new listeners. Have a wonderful weekend. If you are in New Jersey or anywhere in the Northeast, I hope you stay safe in this monster snowstorm we are supposed to get, and I will see all of you soon.